Welcome to day 7,284 of quarantine 2020. You're listening to an hour of your life. Wait, I like this part. Hi, my name's Kim. And I am Steve. And we are still in quarantine. Uh, but that's all right. We're making the best of a bad situation. Um, but before we start, you did want to mention uh, a, a very sad loss. Yeah, I mean, the whole week has been a, um, a lot of deaths in the United States this week. But one of them that I don't want to say we didn't know personally, but one of them that kind of sticks out to me is John Prine, legendary singer-songwriter, mm-hmm. passed, to, um, passed to COVID-19. So rip, rip John Prine. Yeah, he um, John Prine had other uh, health issues as well. He had just, I believe, had a lung transplant or um, some sort of surgery on his lungs. And then so he had a weakened immune system. And then, of course, COVID-19 um, ended up, he and his wife Fiona both caught it. Fiona recovered. John did not. Uh, best known for, probably best known for his song Paradise. Um, really beautiful lyricist and songwriter. And we absolutely will miss him. Yeah. So, let's get on with today's show. Today, well, before we even announce what the show is, I got a poem to read about this one. All right, let's hear it. Is it a poem? Um, you decide. Okay, so here it is. It actually, I think it might actually be a song. Okay. Because of that nursery of four and twenty blackbirds, you know. Okay, so here here it is. Four and twenty Yankees. Feeling very dry, went across the border to get a drink of rye. When the rye was opened, the Yanks begin to sing, God bless America and God save the king. That is a prohibition poem of 1919. So last week, Kim brought you up to speed on why prohibition came about. We called that show Prohibition. Prohibition. Mm-hmm. And I had no clue. I didn't say idea because I have a hard time with that word. <laughs> I had no clue. That the makings of all this was a hundred years prior to mm-hmm. prohibition. That really surprised me about that. It was a slow burn, that's for sure. Yeah. And so if you want to find out how all this came about, go back and listen to episode 37. Yeah. Now, do they need to listen to episode 37 to appreciate episode 38? Absolutely. Okay. So so Absolutely. if if you haven't if you haven't listened to last week's episode, stop what you're doing. Don't listen anymore. Go back and listen to last week's episode. Otherwise, this week's episode won't make any sense. It will, but we want you to listen to episode. <laughs> Do it anyway. Okay. So the eighteenth amendment to the United States Constitution said banned the manufacturer manufacturer oh transportation <laughs> and sale of intoxicating liquors. Um, it brought in the period in the United States history known as Prohibition. So Prohibition was ratified by the states on January 16th, 1919, and officially went into effect on January 17th, 1920, with the passage of the Volstead Act. Now, with this, there were a lot of loopholes. And as we were talking to our friends, one of the, you know, about this week's show, just locally, and people asked, what about, like, um, 
at church, communion and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And yes, that was one of the loopholes. Clergy, you were allowed to have wine, communion. Communion, yeah. yeah. And other, and other uh, yeah. you know, whatever, yeah. religious ceremonies. Um, it's also interesting, too, to me, it's interesting, the wording of the 18th Amendment. You are not allowed to manufacture, you're not allowed to transport, and you're not allowed to sell intoxicating liquor. However, you can still drink it. Yes, so, which is a big loophole with what I'm about to cover right here. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's gifted to you, technically you're not buying or selling it. You're transporting. But that's not my I th- problem. I think in the whole, yeah. That's okay. not my problem as the drinker. Okay. <laughs> so I divided this show up into a couple different categories so it could kind of make sense. And I'm going to start off with booze in Washington, D.C. Because that's not anything to do with each other. (laughs) So President Hoover and President Coolidge both had a stash in the White House while they were sitting presidents. When Coolidge left the office, he actually, he took a stash with him. And as we said, (laughs) it was legal. You were allowed to drink. You just couldn't... Transport, which it sounds like what he's doing. Or sell. Yeah. He's transporting it. Well, it was his own private stash. Whatever. Okay, so... In D.C., there was this enterprising guy who uh, he became known as the bootlegger for the Capitol building. Mm. His name was George L. Cassidy. Um, he later became known as the man with the green hat. And George had been a World War I veteran, and after World War I, he had a hard time getting a job. He, he was out of work, mm. and he, he had to get work. And Cassidy thought big. He wasn't going to, I mean, booze was kind of in his thought process here, but he was um, he, he was not going to just start supplying the local speakeasies. He went straight to Capitol Hill, and he began selling his booze, bootlegging, to the lawmakers, to the cabinet on Capitol Hill. So Cassidy's Capitol Hill career began when he obtained alcohol for two House members, both of them, now get this, both of them had voted in favor of prohibition. Oh. Talk about, you know, talk about your hypocrisy here. So these guys voted against it, and this is where oh. Cassidy started his business. This guy's got some brass ones because how do you even approach that? Like they I probably mean, approached him. I'm you're, well, yeah, but that I that's another thing that I hope that we talk about maybe a little bit is how you know who to go to. Yeah, we will. Because it's not like you just walk up to somebody on the street and be like, "Hey, can you get me some liquor?" That's not safe. Yeah, well, his network after approaching those two lawmakers, his network quickly grew from there. He developed his contacts on Capitol Hill pretty much the same way that a, a lobbyist does right now. Cassidy had a liquor-filled leather briefcase, <laughs> and he always wore his signature emerald hat on his head. So he, it didn't take him long. He was making up to 25 deliveries a day to his clients in the Senate and in the House buildings. Wow. Yeah. His hooch hustling eventually <laughs> became so commonplace, Cassidy was given an office across the street. Folks, this is real. It's true. He was given an office across the street from the Capitol in the basement of the Cannon House office building. Are you serious? Yeah. He used a secret door to gain entry. Members of Congress would drink and play cards in Cassidy's office while waiting for floor votes. Oh, 
my gosh. Yeah. If you ever doubted the level of corruption in Washington, like this was how many? A hundred years, years ago. A yeah. hundred years ago. It's only gotten worse. <laughs> yeah. Cassidy was able to keep Congress supplied with illegal liquor for about five years until he hit a snag. Uh-oh. Yeah. He was arrested by a Capitol Police officer while delivering six quarts of whiskey to a House member. Hmm. Yeah, well, he pled guilty to possession of alcohol and was banned from the House premises and his office in the Cannon Building. Hmm. But being the entrepreneur that he was, it didn't stop him. Cassidy simply shifted his business to the north side of the Capitol and ran things from the Senate office building. Well, there you go. Yeah. Now. That's why we have multiple branches of government. <laughs> yeah. He did almost five years of this bootlegging to the Capitol building. He Five years. And um, without getting caught. Wow. Yeah. His career lasted longer than most, <laughs> most <laughs> congressional careers. Back in the day. Now, congressmen tend to stay in a lot longer. But yeah. back then... Mm-hmm. Back in the good old okay. days. But all good things must come to an end. Cassidy's career as a Capitol Hill bootlegger came to an end in 1930 when a sting operation run by a teetotaling Prohibition Bureau agent named Roger Butts, who was known as the Dry Spy, nabbed him with six bottles of gin in a Senate parking lot. His, he was <laughs> caught by a guy named Butts? Yeah. Mm. Rod, Roger Butts. <laughs> The police also, now, a year or so earlier, the police had also raided Cassidy's home and seized about 266 quarts of premium liquor. Now, wow. he wasn't just selling them any homemade hooch. He was Yeah, that was going to be the, my question. Was he, he, he making top it? shelf stuff. No. He was not making it himself. He was no, procuring it somewhere else. Yeah, it, it was top shelf stuff. But anyway, with those two incidents, as well as his 1925 arrest, um, they got the man in the green hat, and he served an 18-month prison term. That's actually not that bad. After his forced... Yeah. 18 okay. months for, what, five you're going cra- Kim, you're going crazy after about 30 days of no. being on quarantine here in the house. Okay, but after five-plus years of breaking the law, he only got 18 months. That's not... That's not... I'm just saying, like, yeah, it would suck to go to prison for 18 months, but that's not that long of a sentence for how long his crime spree lasted. I think it would suck going to prison for a day. Agreed. Okay. After his forced retirement, Cassidy wrote a, an article or a front page series for the Washington Post, Post prior to the 1930 midterm election. In, that, uh, in his article or his series, Cassidy wrote that he served more Republicans than Democrats and more dries than wets. Mm. During nearly 10 years of running hooch to Capitol Hill, uh, he estimated that he helped four out of five lawmakers break the law. But during his trial and during all this uh, publicity afterward, Cassidy kept to our motto of snitches get stitches, (laughs) and Cassidy didn't rat anybody out. Good man. I like him. He's got a cool name, too. Like, he sounds like a gangster name. Enterprising. Yeah, I like him. Oh, yeah. I'm very pro. Well, well I'm going to go on the record as being pro Cassidy. Okay. So let's talk now. Let's talk about uh, enforcement of how this was done. So do, it, do, was, do, do, do. it was the bootlegger's job to run the hooch, but it was also the feds and local law enforcement to try to stop it. Mm-hmm. Prohibition was difficult to enforce in the United States. Federal and local governments both struggled to enforce prohibition during the 1920s. Enforcement 
was initially assigned to the Internal Revenue Service, or the IRS, which, by the way, our taxes aren't due till July 15th right now. Mm-hmm. So this duty was eventually or later transferred to the Justice Department and the Bureau of Prohibition, or it was commonly known as the Prohibition Bureau. Generally, prohibition was enforced much more strongly in areas where the population was sympathetic to the legislation. And this was mainly rural areas and small towns. And it was enforced much more loosely in urban areas. But early on during enforcement, there was success. There was a decline in arrest for drunkenness and a reported 30% drop in alcohol consumption. Those who wanted to keep drinking found creative ways to drink. It surprises me that it was more loose in the urban areas because it seems like those areas would be easier to bust and make, I mean, I guess make money off of by writing fines and things like that. Well, think about to last week. It was the, the people who were against drinking and those were mainly a lot of, I think a lot of rural people Mm -hmm. and, and folks like that. Yeah. So like I said, those who wanted to keep drinking, they found creative ways to drink. The illegal manufacturing and sale of liquor was known as bootlegging. Now, this went on throughout the entire decade, but Prohibition brought on what we now are known as speakeasies. These are stores, nightclubs that were selling alcohol. There was also a lot of smuggling of alcohol across state lines, and of course the speakeasies who needed the alcohol were profiting by this, by the smuggling that was going on. And, of course, there was always homemade liquor or moonshine or sometimes called bathtub gin that was being produced locally. Now, the U.S. Treasury Department had the mission of overseeing alcohol enforcement. It's estimated that by the mid-1920s, some 60 million gallons of industrial alcohol were stolen to supply the country's drinkers. Now, pay attention. I said industrial alcohol. Ooh. Not not for human consumption. Yeah. So in response, in 1926, President Calvin Coolidge, the government decided to turn chemistry as a way to enforce this. The prohibition. Yeah, the, from the, uh, the, the alcohol that was stolen. Mm-hmm. Some 70 denaturing formulas were applied to the alcohol that was being produced. Most simply added was the poisonous methyl alcohol, which made it, if you drank it, you died. <laughs> Others used a bitter-tasting compounds that were less lethal and was designed to make the alcohol taste bad so that you wouldn't want to drink it. That seems a lot better idea than just adding poison to the alcohol supply because you know people are going to still try to drink it anyway. Yeah, but the bootleggers had a plan. To sell the stolen industrial alcohol, the liquor syndicates employed their own chemists to renature the alcohol <laughs> and return it to a drinkable state. Of course they did. Yeah, of course. The bootleggers paid their chemist a lot more than the government <laughs> paid their chemist, and they did an excellent job at what they were doing. So all that stolen and dis- redistilled alcohol became a the primary source of alcohol and liquor during the country during Prohibition. So federal officials ordered manufacturers to make their products more deadly. In 1926, in New York City, 1,200 people were sickened by poisonous alcohol. 400 of them died. The follow- wow, that's a third. A third of the... Wow. Yeah. The following year, the deaths climbed to 700 people. And these numbers 
were it wasn't just in New York City; it was in cities all across the country. And it didn't take the public health officials long to start complaining to the feds that hey, this is not really a good thing going on. So let me get this straight: the federal government was intentionally poisoning its own citizens as a method of enforcing prohibition. Is that what you're telling me? They, the intent. That's what the conspiracy theorists believe because that they were intentionally poisoning, killing people to do this. I don't think that was the federal government's intent. It was, hey, this stuff's poison. Don't drink it. I mean, you wouldn't mm-hmm. eat rat poison. And, you know, supposedly it was known that it was not good to drink and it wasn't safe to drink, but people mm-hmm. were still trying to do this. But, again, that is a popular conspiracy theory that still goes on today that the federal government was intentionally poisoning people. Interesting. Yeah. Well, officially... These special denaturing program ended once the 18th Amendment was uh, repealed in December 1933. Now, medicinal purposes. Yeah. Rub a little whiskey on the baby's gums when it's teething. You've heard about that one, haven't you? I have heard about yeah. that one. But did you also know that a few teaspoons of bourbon would treat asthma symptoms? I, I wasn't aware. Yeah, or brandy was a great medicine to treat diabetes. Good to know. That Yeah, I don't think modern science would play that out. <laughs> but during Prohibition, the United States Treasury Department authorized physicians to write prescriptions for medicinal alcohol. Licensed doctors with pads of government-issued prescription forms were out there in full force. Patients were advised to take regular doses of hooch to treat a number of ailments to include cancer, indigestion, and depression among some of these things right there. Congress actually debated for about three or four months over the medicinal value of beer. I mean, in some cases it might have been cleaner than the city water. Well, supposedly doctors were actually... the doctors were actually supposed to conduct examinations and diagnosis, but it was mostly bogus, says Daniel Okrent, the author of The Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. He says every 10 days, patients were willing to pay about $3 for a prescription and another 3 or $4 to have it filled to get a pint of booze. There may have been some people who were being prescribed because there was a perceived medical need, but it was really just a way for some physicians and pharmacists pharmacist to make some extra bucks so like i've got gas i need some wine or i've got my i stubbed my toe i need a a pint probably yeah during prohibition's first year doctors prescribed an estimated eight million gallons of medicinal (laughs) alcohol or about 64 million pints holy smokes yeah sixty-four thousand physicians uh, we're giving liquor prescribing permits from 1920 to 1926. Um, they didn't have much to worry about. <laughs> Over 170 physicians per year on averages had their license revoked. Out of 64,000, that's not yeah. too bad. Like I said, they didn't have much to worry about. Um, one of Okren's stories in his book recounts a Detroit physician who encouraged a patient to take three ounces every hour for stimulant until stimulated. Physician wrote an <laughs> so, so essentially take three ounces every hour till you're drunk. Till you're drunk. Physicians wrote an estimated 11 million prescriptions a year through the 1920s. Pro- Prohibition Commissioner John F. Kramer even cited one doctor who wrote 475 prescriptions for whiskey in one day. I wonder 
where, what's the, what's the line there? Like, what is the, okay. Was it the, was it the 475th one or was it like around 300? Where's the line for I, prescriptions I don't of know. booze a I day? I don't know, but that doctor was raking more people <laughs> in. I mean, we go to the doctor and you sit out in the, there, there's not enough time in the day for 400. I don't know if a doctor day could see 475 no. patients. No, no, no. Okay. So what's this remind you of the emergency declaration Ohio just declared? Oh, I know, right? If you guys aren't familiar. This is exactly what this reminds me of. If you guys aren't familiar. So, and as far as I know, we're the only state that's doing this. Um, Open container is illegal in the state of Ohio. Like you cannot have an open container of alcohol in your vehicle. Like a driving pop. You can't do that. Yeah. However... Uh, our governor just signed an emergency action that if you are a, a business that has a liquor license, like if you're a restaurant that has a liquor license, you're now allowed to sell cocktails um, and beer and stuff to patrons to like, you can't drink to it in orders. the restaurant. Yeah. It's basically like a to go order of alcohol. Yeah, You're not even allowed to have it on the street. Yeah. So like earlier today, we were getting a pizza from uh, Kramer's where a dear friend of ours works. And she was saying that basically like they're putting their, um, she said she was selling some margaritas and she put them in their soup containers because that's all they have. Like they don't really have to go cups yeah. well, for that's alcohol. What, that's what this reminds me of is like an emergency declaration. Of like, you can yeah, do you this can... right now. Bootleggers brought prescription forms from crooked doctors and mounted widespread scams. In 1931, 400 pharmacists, pharmacists and 1,000 doctors were caught in a scam where doctors sold and signed prescription forms to bootleggers. A whopping 12 doctors and 13 pharmacists were eventually indicted for this. The ones that were charged faced a one-time $50 fine. Aw, boo-hoo. You want to bet that they weren't right back at it again the next day? Okay, now... Charles R. Walgreen, and we know his stores today of Walgreen's drugstores. And one on every corner. Yep. He expanded his stores from 20 stores to 525 stores during the 1920s, thanks to medicinal alcohol sales. And you can still buy alcohol in Walgreens today, I think. I I don't know. I'm pretty sure you can. And this is how a lot of distilleries, and especially in the state of Kentucky and Tennessee, yeah. were allowed to stay open because there were legitimate needs for alcohol, and they did that. You know, and even right now, as we're going through this COVID thing, a lot of distilleries, and there are a lot of local distilleries mm-hmm. here, they have stopped producing booze, and they are now producing hand sanitizer. Shout out to Bell of Dayton and Still Rights, who are both producing, local. yeah, they're local business, local distilleries um, that have stopped producing alcohol for consumption and have started producing hand sanitizer that you cannot buy, but they are hand, they are literally giving it away to first line um, healthcare workers and so on and Police, so forth. Police, EMS. Yep. So, uh, so kudos to them. Bootlegging and homemade hooch. The great, the vastness of the United States made enforcement really, really hard. I mean, the United States is huge. We have large open borders with Canada and Mexico. Mm-hmm. There weren't enough federal agents to patrol all this. And even still, even back in the 1920s, was it still? Yeah, as, the United States getting it didn't get any smaller. No, I know, but I mean, we didn't have. Did we? Uh, never mind. I don't know what our geographical territories and things were like 
We had well, all Canada's of Canada's always been to our all, north. <laughs> and I mean, Mexico's always did been we to still our have, south. We had 48 states in the 20s. Yes. And then Alaska and Hawaii were added later. Right. Okay. So, yeah, but the, the point is <laughs> there weren't enough cops and federal agents to, um, to do this, to patrol the borders. There were also miles and miles of unguarded beaches, which were just right and prime for sneaking rum and booze up from the Caribbean. Like pirates. Like pirates, yeah. Well, no, the pirates were taking it. Like the pirates of the Caribbean. They were more like privateers, I guess. Okay. okay. But people became creative to figure this stuff out. Did you know that grape juice, if you fermented it, would ferment in about 60 days? I didn't know the timeline, but I know I have accidentally fermented grape juice before. Well, it must have sat in the fridge for at least 60 it was, days. It was a little bit. Yeah. Uh, bathtub gin. A lot, of the, a lot of the homemade hooch was called bathtub gin. Moonshiners had always been popular, now became more popular. And moonshining was always a big thing in the South. Now, here's an interesting little tidbit. The feds would chase you as you're trying to run your your product to the speakeasy or wherever you were trying to deliver it. Uh You might be chased by the feds. So the moonshiners needed muscle cars and fast cars to outrun the feds. Welcome the birth of NASCAR. No, aw. Yes. Really? Th- this NASCAR can trace its roots back to, to moonshiners. To moonshining, yes. Rum Absolutely. Yep. Well, muscle cars. Interesting. Now, moonshine is actually pretty easy to make, but Tastes you re- awful. But, but you really have to know what you're doing. Basically, how you do it, you you make a mash with corn and water. And there's a process of boiling and cooling and stirring. Then you add some sugar or molasses to, uh, and then you allow it to ferment. Now, there's some more steps and some other things. We're not going to tell you because it's illegal to do today, and we don't want to give you directions on how to make moonshine. Right, and you're not allowed to even make moonshine. But anyway, the whole process is you it, it converts the starches to sugar, and then it ferments, and you heat it up again, and then it goes through some cooling tubes, and it drips out. Basically, think of steam dripping mm-hmm. out. So this alcohol gets turned into a steam, and then it goes through cooling tubes, and it, you put your jug underneath mm-hmm. these cooling tubes, and you, you have pure moonshine right there. Now, mm-hmm. this is dangerous because the first couple drops, pints, I don't know exactly how much, maybe the first pint, maybe the first gallon, you can't drink yeah. because you'll go blind or you'll die, and you can't do that. So, obviously, there's a lot more to this, to making moonshine, but I'm not going to talk about it more because it's illegal, as right. Kim said, and I don't want to get in trouble with the feds. So, but. so, don't do this at home. It's illegal to make moonshine. So, kids, don't try this at home. Right. But if you really do want to know more about the process... Um, Google. Well, <laughs> Google. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, you can probably find a distillery... I would say probably within 100 miles of where you live. Um, And I would highly recommend a tour. It's actually, the distilling process is actually, I think, very interesting. Um, And and a lot of distilleries offer tours, even like the small local places. So uh, before you Google how to make moonshine, do a Google search for distilleries near me and go take a tour. Take a tour. Don't do it yourself. Now, within the first few months of Prohibition, there were homemade stills that were being sold. They were sold by the thousands for people to make their own their own hooch. Mm. But 
Lots of uh, top-shelf booze was smuggled in from Canada and up from the Caribbean. It's untold how much booze was smuggled across the Detroit River from Windsor, Canada to Detroit. That was one of the major places, and there were lots of places, like we said, up along the Canadian border. It's, it was wilderness, yeah, and it was just run the stuff through there. Now, speakeasies became popular during this time. A speakeasy is basically an illegal tavern that sold alcoholic beverages. They exploded during Prohibition uh, from 1920 to 1933. Sometimes they were known as blind pigs, blind tigers, and they were often operated by organized crime members, but not always. And an interesting fact here, well, we'll talk about it in a bit. Women um, were very popular speakeasy owners because they weren't suspect. And so a lot of women were running speakeasies. At the beginning of Prohibition, legal joints may have appeared to close down for a short period, but really all they did, they went underground. They went to basements, attics, upper floors. They were disguised as other businesses, such as cafes, soda shops, and entertainment venues. Many had clues to what they really were. Uh, In some places, it may have been green doors and that was a clue so like if you were a business like going to go back to your earlier question yeah it's like if you were a businessman and you traveled to a different city how did you find it the taxi cab driver people knew where they were and then there there were common things like the green doors if i wonder so the green doors i wonder if that was any like the color green keeps coming up i wonder if that was coincidental like the guy in the green hat and the green door um, if the two were linked or if it was just coincidental. I don't know. And everything I looked, I didn't see it. I think that just may have been coincidental. Huh. But speakeasies quickly became established institutions all across the country. Now, they got their name because you had to whisper. I mean, it was there. It was kind of common knowledge. But you'd have to, like, if you were that businessman and you went to New Orleans or you went to Columbus or Chicago or wherever... The cab driver knew. Yeah. When you, when you got off the train, the cab driver knew, and all you had to do was ask, and they would do. But you may have to have that password. Now, what was interesting was on the East Coast, a lot of the speakeasies were disguised as seafood shops. Yeah. Interesting. I yeah. mean, I would understand, like, if you were, say, in Ohio, and your speakeasy was a seafood shop, like, if your secret word was, where can I get some shrimp? That would make a lot more sense. Like, you're not going to find that in Ohio. But if you're in Baltimore and you say, where can I get a crab cake? Like, how do people know that if you're looking for a crab cake or if you're looking for a shot? Well, at one time, it was thought that there were over 100,000 speakeasies in New York City alone. Whoa. So it wasn't hard to find a drink if you really wanted one. (laughs) So the place that actually served crab cakes probably also served liquor. Yeah. New Jersey claimed uh, there were 10 times as many speakeasies as before the amendment and rochester new york said they had twice the number and the same was true pretty much all over the nation that these speakeasies speakeasies were popping up generally before thirsty uh, patron could cross the illegal threshold though they had to know that password or maybe the secret handshake or the secret knock maybe i bet you can hear this come on in yeah okay something (laughs) like that And gone also were the sounds of the piano and the dance hall girls. 
Prohibition brought in jazz. Yeah. There was lots of competition from a lot of different establishments, so you had to try to lure people into your into your speakeasy. Many of the speakeasies provided music for their patrons, and hundreds of jazz musicians, primarily they came up from New Orleans, and easily found work. It was just a party place for people to go. My favorite story, Ira Gershwin. Um, you guys have, I'm sure, heard a very famous musical talent. Ira Gershwin wrote a lot of different musicals um, that have been all over Broadway. He fell in love with and dated an upper upper class. Like he was a piano player during in one of the speakeasies or in several of the speakeasies. Uh, in the early days before he got really famous, or was it Gershwin? No, it was Irving Berlin. Irving Sorry. Berlin. Irving Berlin. I wasn't going to correct you. I no, was you're right. You talk. Irving Berlin. He was a piano player and fell in love with a rich girl. And when her, her dad, daddy wasn't having any no, of that. No, when he found out about it, he basically sent her off to live with her aunt in Europe. <laughs> and uh, But he waited for her. Irving Berlin waited for her, and she came back, and they got married, and they were married for like 60-something years or something. I mean, a very long time. Um, so there are some really romantic stories to come out of this jazz era, too. Yeah, well... In these speakeasies, there was music, and where there's music, there was dancing, and where there is dancing, there were women. <laughs> yep. And so it made the, the speakeasies popular places. But in the new saloons or the speakeasies of the Prohibition era, many of these women were not exclusively dance hall girls or entertainers. They were there to get a drink because previously they had not been allowed in the saloons of the past or where regular women found... They were welcome in speakeasies. However, during this new era that welcomed women, alcohol began to... This is where we got our mixed drinks from because we didn't have mixed drinks up to then. It was liquor. It was yeah. it was bourbon. It was scotch. It was whiskey and stuff like that. Well, the women didn't like that, and especially if it was this homemade hooch from the denatured <laughs> alcohol, yeah. or the renatured alcohol, I guess. So the, the bartenders, the speakeasies, started mixing their drinks with... Soft drinks, sugar water, and fruit juices, which made the bootleg liquor much more tasty. So millions of people who didn't like the taste of beer, wine, or hard liquors found cocktails pretty much irresistible. And that's where cocktails I like a good cocktail. About. Yeah. The flapper, the girls became known as flappers. They were wearing short skirts, bobbed hair, and they flooded the speakeasies. Women at this time dared to smoke and drink cocktails, dancing became uh, really, really popular. And they were dancing to the jazz music of soon-to-be greats, uh, musicians such as Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Bojangles Robinson, and Ethel Waters. I would have loved to have been a woman during this time, like a 20-something during the 20s. How much fun would that have? That would have been so much fun. Yeah, well, women powdered their faces, put on bright red lipstick, bared their arms and legs. Mm. But it didn't take long until both prohibition and jazz music was blamed for the immorality of women. Raids became a daily federal pastime, but law enforcement couldn't keep up. There were just way too many. When the cops were successful in targeting a gin joint, the club owners anticipated this. I mean, they anticipated they were going to get raided. Yeah. And uh, they were often able to hide the true goings-on. They had elaborate alarm systems set up, and their booze was hidden in drop shelves and secret cabinets. 
Other establishments didn't even bother with hiding or disguising their liquor. They just simply paid off the cops and the feds, which led to a monumental amount of political corruption. What a time to be alive. I mean, really, it is just... In some ways, it's the exact opposite of of today, where there is no political correctness and dirty cops are... To be expected. And you said there's no political correctness today? No, no, no. Back in the 20s. Oh. There's not, you know, compared to today, back in the 20s, it was, you know, you paid off the cops, not a big deal. And short skirts and, I don't know, it's just, and it's interesting to me, too, to think about, um, you know, these are the grandmothers of the women, of the hippies in the 60s that burn their bras and stuff. And so it's interesting to me to think about um, sort of the generational perspectives of the the jazz joint folks. And then they gave birth to the greatest generation who and then the their grandkids were the hippies. So I wonder what it was like if you were if you were a hippie and your grandparents were jazz joint people. Um, I would love to hear what your relationship was like with them growing up. Like if you guys had similar mindsets. Well, as many of the jobs I've had, generational studies are a big part of what I have to mm-hmm. read and understand. And I, I actually, I find, you know, nothing's a hundred percent, but as a general rule, generational studies do, they, they track right along with, yeah. I mean, it's stereotyping, but that's exactly what it is. Because it seems like that sort of liberation ideology that came with the flappers and the jazz musicians was that same liberational ideology that their grandkids had in in the 60s. Well, I mean, we're all related to them, too. Yeah, but it, I mean, just the same ideology. You know, you had the kind of more... Um, I don't know. How would you describe the greatest generation as like very uh, stick to it? And and well, they grew up as kids during this, and then they went through the depression, right? And then they were faced with World War II. Yeah, so they had a much more hard life, I think, than their parents did, and then their children did. So that's what I'm saying. Like their parents in the who were the young people in the 20s in this age of. Um, free-flowing secret liquor and new jazz and liberation, and then their children who are hippies in the 60s. So I'm saying like the grandparents of the 20s and the grandchildren in the 60s, I wonder if they, uh, what kind of relationship they had and and if there was kind of a common um, go read Go read your generational studies. It's I would, all there. I, I think I might do that. Yeah. So... With all this, there's cops and robbers, or gangsters and feds. Yeah. While there were many feds and gangsters during this period, I only decided to focus on the two most famous, Al Capone as the gangster and Elliot Ness as the federal agent. So each major city had its gangster element because it wasn't just Chicago. I mean, it was in New York. It was in Columbus. It was in Indianapolis. It was in New Orleans, Los Angeles, Las Vegas. It was everywhere. Yeah. But um, Al Capone is probably the most famous gangster, and he was in Chicago. Capone was eventually known as public enemy number one. He moved to Chicago in 1920 where he worked for a guy named Johnny Torrio. And he Torrio was the city's leading uh, figure in the underworld. Capone was given the task of being Torrio's strong arm for the rivals within the city. 
And so what Capone was supposed to do was go over and make sure that no one uh, moved in on Torrio's territory. And that's what, that's what Capone did. Capone also had the task to convince the speakeasy owners to buy their booze from Torrio. Now, Capone was very good at what he did. And in 1925, Torrio was nearly killed by a rival gang, and he decided to get out of the criminal world while he was still alive. Torrio handed his business over to Al Capone. Within two years, Capone was earning $60 million a year from alcohol sales alone and other rackets, which would be managing the speakeasies and just all the the corruption that you go on. You know, he had his hands in like the trash. Now, he we, had his hands in a lot of things. $60 million a year. Is that $60 million today or $60 million in 1920-something terms? $60 million in 1920s terms. Whoa. And I didn't do the math to figure out what it no, was No, but today. that's a heck of a lot. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So Capone managed to bribe both the police and the important politicians of Chicago. He spent $75 million on bribes but he considered that a good investment. Well, yeah, because he's raking in more than that. I mean, he's getting over $100 million a year. What? Yeah, I mean, $60 million, He was... And then $45 million from his other exploits. Yeah. So he's yeah. getting... He's still profiting he's making a lot of quite money. a yeah. bit. Capone had armed thugs that patrolled the election booths to ensure that, Capone, that Capone's... Uh, bought politicians either remained in office or the new ones were elected to office. The city's mayor after 1927 was a guy named Big Bill Thompson, and Thompson was one of Capone's boys. Capone still had a lot of enemies out there. I mean, he was the big guy, but there were still rival gangs operating in Chicago. I wouldn't want to take him on. Now, everywhere he went, he traveled in an armor-plated limousine, and wherever he went, he did so with his armed bodyguards. Violence was a daily occurrence in Chicago during this time. 227 gangsters were killed in the space of four years. And you've all heard about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Mm -hmm. Now, this has never been officially attributed to Capone, but in 1929, several men dressed as policemen and believed to have been associated with Capone shot and killed a group of men in an enemy gang, a rival gang. It wasn't Capone's gang, so they could never pin this on him, Mm. but they're... They're, they're pretty sure. Yeah. Now, in 1931, the law headed up by federal agent, special agent, Elliot Ness, finally caught up with Capone, and he was charged with tax evasion. Of all the things. Yeah. He got 11 years in jail, Capone did. In prison, while he was serving his time, his uh, health declined, and he was released. He retired to his Florida mansion. Special Agent Elliot Ness is one of the most famous federal agents in the history of law enforcement. As a supervisor of an ordinary team of agents, he did the extraordinary with his job. He and his team, they had, they had a really tough job with all the corruption that was going on in Chicago and everything that was going on. He he um, And he had a small team. Like there it wasn't a lot of them. No, it wasn't. And he they were called the untouchables. And they took on organized crime. To be a part of Elliot Ness's team, uh, you you had to be uncorruptible. And Elliot Ness demanded this of the people. And he, because of all the crime and the corruption, yeah. and that really foiled a lot of his plans and raids because the way it worked, they would have to notify ombudsmen yeah. and people like that in there. I and, wonder and they how were tipped off. he tested them. Because you know he did. 
I, so I, how did he test the people to... We, we could do an entire episode on Elliot Ness. Untouchables, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, that might be a good one to do one time. I wonder, too, um, you said, going back a little bit, Al Capone had health issues. I wonder how much of that... He was in Alcatraz, Yeah. right? So I wonder how much of that was kind of aggravated by living on... The good basic, gangster life? Well, I, I mean know. by living on, in Alcatraz, which is in the middle of, you know the salty ocean, like I'm sure. And we visited Alcatraz. It's not, it's damp. It's not like, it's not comfy quarters. I couldn't tell you. So I bet you that probably was exacerbated a little bit by. You've heard of the comic book hero, Dick Tracy. Yeah. Inspired by Elliot Ness. Oh, yep. Did not know that. Yep. So Chicago on the gangster side was completely, it belonged to Al Capone. Mm-hmm. So in 1930, two events not only changed the course of Ness's career, but also redirected the, the path of federal law enforcement of how we know it today. Generally, the ATF's legacy was the Bureau of Prohibition, the ATF of today. Alcohol, was, tobacco, and firearms. Alcohol, tobacco, and firearms started off as the Bureau of Prohibition, which we mentioned earlier, which was transferred to the U.S. Department of Treasury to the U.S. Department of Justice. Fed up with Capone, President Herb- Herbert Hoover gave a directive to get Capone. He was, he was fed up with Capone's brazen and just disregard for the law. And so he ordered the feds to, to take Capone down. He, basically, he went to war against Capone and his outfit. The presidential um, declaration set in motion Chicago's U.S. Attorney General E.Q. Johnson a two-pronged investigation on Al Capone. One effort, one effort led by the Bureau of Prohibition investigated the division's newly appointed special agent in charge, SAC, Elliot Ness, and his team of agents. They were ordered to disrupt Capone's operations and gather evidence on prohibition violations. The other, led by Elmer Erie and Frank Wilson of the Internal, Internal Revenue Service, they investigated Capone's finances and that is eventually what took, through a team effort, it was through the IRS and laundering money and tax evasion is they, they, they could never get Capone on. Um, He's good. Yeah. On any of the murder charges or any of the prohibition charges, they yeah. got him on tax evasion. He was really good. You know, if, the guy who kept the books. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend the Kevin Costner movie, The Untouchables. Very good. Yeah, it is. It's an older movie. I mean, obviously, it's got Kevin Costner in it. He's not in much of anything these days, but it's really a good, good film um, that kind of gives you an insight into Elliot Ness in this time in history. So Prohibition is up and running, but by 1932, with the country stuck in the Great Depression, creating jobs and revenue by legalizing the liquor industry had become an undeniable appeal. The country needed to put people back to work. And with as many people who were out of work in all the distilleries and all the breweries and things like that, this could put a lot of people to work. And so it prohibition started becoming illegal, or not illegal, but unpopular, not because so much of all the, the moral reasons like that, but people started, started hitting people in the pocketbooks. Mm. Yep. So before long, groups began to organize to repeal prohibition, especially after the Great Depression when people were looking for jobs. Um, 
Like I said, a lot of jobs could be created of breweries, distilleries, and taverns. Like I said, you know what we say, 100,000 in New York? Just yeah. think if all those people were legally employed. Yeah. So that's a lot of revenue that's being missed right now. Even Herbert Hoover was forced to admit that the 18th Amendment was offering more harm than good. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt ran for president on the platform calling for the repeal of prohibition. And he easily won over the incumbent President Herbert Hoover. FDR's victory meant um, it, it, it spelled the end for prohibition. In February 1933, Congress adopted a resolution proposing a 21st Amendment to the Constitution that would repeal the 18th Amendment. The 18th Amendment was submitted to the states. 21st. The 21st Amendment. It would, it would, it would repeal the 18th yeah. Amendment. Yeah, and the, the 21st, 21st was submi- Amendment was submitted. Right, yeah. to repeal the 18th Amendment. And that was submitted to the states in 1933. So basically, if you have an years. amendment to the United States, it has to be voted on, and then two-thirds of the states have to ratify it to make it legal. Yeah. It's not, just, everybody- it's not just our congressmen and senators in Washington, D.C. The states have to, yeah. to vote on this. It's interesting. Prohibition, 13 years. That's a long time. That's like an entire generation. 13 years, yeah. That's a long time. I don't ever really think of prohibition. I that's probably just me, but whenever I think of prohibition, I think of like a couple years. No, 13 years prohibition was in effect. Okay, so a lot of counties in eastern Kentucky are still dry. Forever, Moorhead, Kentucky, where I went to college, was a dry county, which really, I mean, the same things were going on. There were bootleggers and things like that happening. And if you were 18 years old, all prohibition meant for you, you didn't have to have an ID card because the bootlegger would never card you. Right, yeah. yeah. So a lot of effects and things came out of prohibition. Research indicates that alcohol consumption declined substantially due to prohibition. Rates of liver cirrhosis, alcoholic psychosis, and infant mortality mortality also declined during these 13 years. Mm. Yep. Prohibition's effect on rates of crime and violence um, is disputed because initially there was that decline that we talked about at yeah. the beginning because, but as the speakies and... I wonder how much other stuff, so like liver cirrhosis went down, alcoholic psychosis went down, infant mortality, that's kind of interesting, but I wonder what other things went up. But like, because you were drinking poison alcohol for some, in some cases, so like poisonings probably went up. Um, you know, different other health things probably spiked by drinking hooch instead of you know regulated alcohol. I'm, I'm sure. So, I mean, like, lots of different things happened here. Um, is organized crime started coming in? Okay, that so then too, yeah. that that increased. And because the speakeasies weren't regulated, there was a lot of illegal things and you know, prostitution, mm-hmm. things like that were going on. Um, despite this, it lost supporters every year it was in action, and it lowered the government tax revenues at a critical time. Like we said, this is the 
the Great Depression. Right so before, yep. the government is losing money because they're not getting all the, the tax money yeah. off the booze that was being produced. The high price of bootlegging liquor meant that the nation's working class and poor were far more restricted during Prohibition than the middle or upper class because the middle or upper class, they could afford to buy the hooch. And a lot of the folks had stockpiled this, especially the rich people. There were there were talks of some of the really rich people bought years and years of wine, booze, and they put them in their basements to yeah. be prepared for prohibition. I mean, they probably anticipated that it wouldn't yeah. last. When we talked about this last week, then we said, you know, you could afford to buy alcohol that would keep. Whereas, you know, the regular guy working in the warehouse district, he can't afford a, you know, a bottle of cognac or whatever. He can afford a pint of beer, and that's not going to keep like, a, you know, a bottle of expensive scotch or bourbon would. So there's a social economic impact to all this too the rich they had their their high class booze and yep. i'm you know they were they were getting the good stuff from canada and up from the caribbean another setback for the prohibition was the loss of control over the location of drinking establishments what we just mentioned right there where before ordinances and licensing laws were allowed to limit alcohol sales on sundays election days and in certain neighborhoods illegal speakeasies sprouted up everywhere without limitations on the hours Oh, that yeah. they were running. So I, you know, made a lot of noise, I I guess. You hear a lot of stories of speakeasies wouldn't even really get going good until after midnight. And people are come stumbling out into the street at six and seven o'clock in the morning yeah. when quote unquote respectable people were going off to work. Yeah. So and, you know, now most places are closed at two. two. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, not that we would know, but but yeah, like they didn't even get going till after midnight. Yeah, it was I wonder where they found food. <laughs> <laughs> Luckies. <laughs> Luckies. Yeah. So, serious crime rates, which have been falling during the first part of the century, gradually reversed itself during Prohibition as homicides, burglaries, and assault increased. So, more drunks out there. I imagine mm. uh, domestic abuse picked up yeah. considerably during the, during this time frame. Prisons became more overcrowded due to the fact that there were more people incarcerated for alcohol-related crimes. In no time, American prisons were suffering from extreme overcrowding problems that they have right now. Yeah, and you hear a lot of the stories about this. Like, in their quote-unquote heyday, um, a lot of the old prisons that have now either been shut down or renovated or whatever, they were, you know, holding two and three times the amount of guys that they were supposed to to hold, and it was just really awful conditions. Yeah, I don't imagine. I mean, I don't think prisons a great place. I worked in a prison for a little bit. You know, they're not the best place, but I imagine the prisons today are a little bit nicer than they were in 1920. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I and we've seen like we toured. Uh, was it Mansfield? Yeah. You know, Ohio Reformatory. Um. And those cells were tiny. I mean, you're talking six feet by four feet ish. And you got two and three guys crammed in that cell. Well, we've listened to a lot of podcasts about serial killers and the ones that we, that were um, during the turn of the century, you know, the, just the way they described how the prisons were run yeah. back then. It wasn't. Not, not a pleasant place to good. be. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be in prison. Yeah. Not today, not then, not ever. <laughs> so 
a lot of lessons learned the, about uh, prohibition. But I guess some of the biggest lessons learned was that where there's a will, there's a way. In, in multiple senses of the word. Remember that prohibition started by a bunch of people who were severely anti-alcohol, a lot of women who were hardcore anti-alcohol, and they just kept fussing at people until they passed prohibition. And then during prohibition, people wanted to drink, they found a way to drink. And then the people wanted to, you know, make drinking legal again, and those same people Power to the way. Power to the people. Yep. So, yeah, so your voice counts. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess the other last lesson of all this, uh, at least for the purposes of, of this podcast, <laughs> is no matter how restrictive the government gets, someone's going to find a way around it. Mm-hmm. And make money doing it in the and process. Make, and make, yeah. <laughs> Just like old George Cassidy, right? George L. Cassidy. <laughs> we yeah. talked about Mr. Green had himself. Yeah. At least he started <laughs> At the Capitol building. There you go. Start yeah. at the top. Yeah, me as well. <sighs> All right. So that ends our uh, our series, our two-part series on prohibition. And prohibition. And, and prohibition. And I think that we are going to continue on a theme next week, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we talked about that. So you'll have to you'll have to tune in next week to see where this is all going, but... Um, I don't know. I think this period in history is fascinating and some of the parallels to what's going on now, you know, everybody when it turned 1920 or when it turned 2020, everybody was like, hey, hey, the roaring 20s again. But yeah, it's you forget how (laughs) sucky the 20s were sometimes. So careful what you wish for. Yeah. So we made it back and same thing. uh, Like everyone here in our household right now is still healthy. We hope that wherever you are, you are healthy. Mm-hmm. And again, if you are in a different part of the country, if you have a story to tell, if you are overseas and you have a story to tell about how your country, your town, your city, wherever, how you're dealing with um, with the COVID-19 emergency, shoot us an email. We're at yeah. Kim. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at An Hour of Your Life. You can find us on Twitter at A Lost Hour, and you can email us at a lost hour at gmail.com. Um, also, something that I wanted to suggest is uh, we're going to steal uh, an idea from Gem City Podcast. Um, if you're interested, Izzy Rock had people send in, like, record a voice note um, about, like, and if you would rather do that than write to us, we would love that, and we would be more than happy to play it on the air. Yeah, record it on your cell phone. And yeah, just and just email it, email to, it us to us at alosthour at gmail.com. Absolutely. So, here we are again. Yep. You know, hopefully that we will be back next week, that the COVID will stay away. I feel safe. It's Easter Sunday. Today is actually, well, yesterday was Good Friday, mm-hmm. and is, tomorrow is Easter Sunday. A yep. lot of... Uh, Churches are finding creative ways to celebrate Easter. Yep. I think tomorrow we're going to go to a church that um, it, it, it's it's a drive-in. Yes. And you will pull up, you'll stay in your car, and they have set it up that you can... They have a radio station. A radio station. Mm-hmm. So you can sit in the comfort of your car yep. and have Easter service. It the, the whole world's upside down right now with all this. So, But if you, if you are listening to us... Um, on Saturday night, just please be careful. I know it stinks that you got to spend the, ho- you know, a, a major holiday away from your family, but 
remember that there's a point to it and there's a reason for it. And, and please just be safe and don't put anybody at unnecessary risk. Yeah. And it, it appears that the social distancing is working, that mm-hmm. we're not getting the, uh, the fatalities, the mortality rate that were initially projected if this didn't happen. Here in and, Ohio. And, and I know there are a lot of people that just don't believe it's happening and there, there are going to be people that say uh, it's all a bunch of crap that, see, it we, we shut down all the economy for nothing, but, you know, hey, you got to keep an open mind. What would it have been if none of this would have happened? Yeah. I, th- I personally think there are a lot of people alive Absolutely. And lives that have been saved because we've done what's going to do. And, and if, I think I think if you economy- happen to live in one of those places where you are, you know, like in Ohio, where you are not seeing high numbers, uh, please don't forget about places like New York City and Italy and, um, you know, China, where they did have these huge numbers. Spain. Spain, where they did have these huge numbers. So please, 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 just because you can't see it where you are doesn't mean it's not happening. Don't be a flat earther. (laughs) Yeah. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. Right. Okay. So here we are, Kim, at the end of this episode. All right. All right. So from our studios in Beaver Creek, Ohio. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. In addition to the in-show citations, this week we also had content from History Learning Site, Legends of America, Wikipedia, History.com, Atlas Obscura, Slate.com, InsideHook.com, and the ATF. Thanks, stay safe.